0: Alright everybody, it is 6.30, time for us to begin. We are in the book of Revelation, and we are going to be beginning here in just a second, Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> Hopefully we will finish this whole chapter uh, in this class tonight. Revelation chapter 11. So we are, and I'm not going to walk you through the entire ten chapters preceding this, but just to catch you up in the very immediate. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, John is uh, was witnessing a scene, or is still presently witnessing the scene where uh, everything got very very quiet in heaven for lack of a better description and then these seven angels appeared and in the midst of all this quietness these seven trumpets each one given to an angel and that is a very significant tell that it's not going to be quiet for very long and sure enough one by one each angel starts sounding his trumpet and in in conjunction with each trumpet blast is a word of woe or doom or um, judgment to come. Specifically, it seems to be on the Roman Empire, but by application, all of God's enemies and the devil uh, in particular. But in the context of Revelation and to the people originally, this letter was written to um, the Roman Empire. And so you have these various aspects of the empire, and I'll break that down as we finish it, because we're going to finish. The seventh trumpet is going to sound here very soon, and then we'll look at the whole totality of it. But that's what we're kind of in the midst of um, as as we're walking through this. We saw the first six trumpets, or heard i guess metaphorically speaking the six trumpets be sounded and there was a kind of a pause the first six happened almost in very short succession and then after the sixth one we haven't heard the seventh one yet there was a whole chapter in fact in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blast a lot of stuff happened and that's where we pick up uh, as we open revelation chapter 11 john is writing and he speaks in the first person here in verse 1 he says, there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. I guess I should say one more thing just to kind of catch us up. If you remember last week, uh, we were introduced to this ginormous angel so large that he was able to have one foot on land and one foot on the sea, and he was holding what the King James called a little scroll or a little book. Your Bible probably says a small scroll. or or just a fragment is really what the word literally means, a fragment of a scroll. And John was told, go up to that gigantic angel and ask for that scroll and ask if you could uh, have it. And so when John does, this monstrously large angel says here, but you have to eat all of it, which is a perfectly ordinary response to someone who asks for a book. You have to eat all of it. But then he's warned, when you do consume all of it, it will be honey in your mouth and um, bitter in your belly. So it'll go down sweet and it'll come out sour. Go, 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 I think I described it last week. It'll go in as Taco Bell and come out as go in as Chick Fil A and come out as Taco Bell. Um, but the, the point of it is, the idea is that what the book is containing, as a matter of fact, is the whole second half of the Book of Revelation, and the core message of which is: Yes, you will win, but the devil's going to get his licks in. In the meantime, the devil's going to get his shots in. In the meantime, many of you will die. Before your victory is finally achieved. But let's put that death in context. Death is nothing to God. And so it is nothing to God's people. And you will be taken care of even in death. So that's the bittersweet nature of this fight with Satan. It's sweet that we'll win. It's bitter that some of us will die along the way. So that angel, presumably, is the same one because there's no context for any other angel introduced. So it's the same angel we were just talking about in the previous chapter. When you open up to verse 1 of chapter 11, that same angel now is giving John another instruction. Instead of, eat this scroll, now he says, take this measuring stick. The King James calls it a reed or a rod. Your Bible might have a slightly different translation. But it's a tool that would be used to measure... Sizes If you're if you're measuring out to build a house and or to measure how big a house that's already built is, which is the context here, as he says to him, take this rod and measure the temple of God. What is this temple of God? Well, if you remember going all the way back to chapter four, we've been in a kind of temple setting in these various stages of the plays that John is watching. The curtain's drawn, the curtain's open, it's a new scene. But he's always kind of around the throne room scene of God, which is a grand, majestic, heavenly version of the temple. Well here, John is in the midst of a measurable temple. He's in the midst of some kind of a, of a building, for lack of a better word, that he's able to measure and determine the size of it. But let's remember that we're not, when you read this word temple, let's put it in the context of the New Testament Christian who is reading it. Now in this chapter, and in the chapter to come, chapter 12 and also chapter 13, there is going to be a lot of reference made to specific, real world, very Jerusalem centric places and things. You're going to read those things and your mind is going to want you to immediately associate them with the Jerusalem equivalent. Holy city, oh that's Jerusalem. John wants you to make that connection, but he doesn't want you to stop there. He wants you to see Holy City connected to Jerusalem and then say, what is the allegory? What is the point? What about Jerusalem? What is the overall message that ties in with Jerusalem? He's not writing about Jerusalem. He's using Jerusalem as a character in the play to teach you the lesson of the metaphor of Revelation. So in this case, you read Temple of God. Your first connection, you've got to make two of them. Your first connection is to the Old Testament Jerusalem-inhabited temple of God. But then from there, your second point of connection is what is the application? What is the allegory of that Old Testament temple of God? So he's going to be in the temple of God, measuring the temple of God. But we're going to learn lessons along the way. All right, keep looking at the verse. Uh, Verse 1 still. The angel says, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So your mind is naturally going to go to Old Testament, but let's not keep it there. Um, what, let's not run away from this idea of a measuring stick, though. What do you use a measuring stick for? To determine the size. and If you're measuring a building, how many people can you fit in a building? As we're going to see as we go through this, what this temple of God represents is what the New Testament temple is, the home of God's people. And who are God's people but God's priests and priestess is... So whether you're male or female, if you're a Christian, you're a priest or priestess, you are a person in the kingdom of God, in the temple of God, working for God. And that's going to be the way it's used in this chapter. But he's only going to talk about the Old Testament temple. It's up to the Christian reading this to make that second connection. That he's not just talking about the temple. He's using the temple to talk about something spiritual. Okay? All right. So if you're measuring it, you're trying to determine its size, the idea is how many people can we fit in this building Well, if it's the temple of Jesus Christ, if it's His spiritual church, you can fit the whole body of saved people in it. Verse 2. As the angel is telling them, measure the temple, measure the the dimensions of the temple, it says in verse 2, the court, which is, the King James says, without the temple, but that should be outside of or separate from the temple. Leave that out, the angel says, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty. For, uh, sorry foot forty and two months they'll tread under their foot 42 months so there is slowly being uh, illustrated for us this kind of layered image okay you have at the center of this image and i'm not going to try to draw what the actual temple of jerusalem looked like because it's a metaphor anyway you have the center of this image the temple all right john is told to measure this but beyond the temple you have the courtyard beyond the temple don't measure that And then, even though it's not clear yet, it will be soon, there is even beyond that a whole city around the courtyard within the space of the temple. So there's going to be three levels here. Measure this, don't measure this, and what will be clear in a moment is all around here are all these people trampling and trotting under their foot. Those are evil people. Evil people are here. God's people are here. But the mystery we're going to unravel in this chapter is who are these people in the middle? Evil people trampling, that's your Roman Empire, that's your wicked people. God's people in the temple, measure them, let's find out how many we can fit in this building. And then out here, but not quite out here, but not yet in here, is a whole different category. We'll get there, alright? Look again at verse 2. The court outside the temple, leave out, don't measure that, because it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. See? Temple, court, and the holy city. Everything that is there layered in pieces. All right. 42 months, they will go trampling. 42 months, they will be leaving destruction in their wake. 42 months will be a very, very bad time to put it in simple terms. What is 42 months? It is three and a half years. Three and a half. Anything is a recurring term, a recurring um, numerical figure in Revelation. In this very text, we're going to be seeing later three and a half days. But here we have three and a half years. What's three and a half years? I mean, my mind goes to the ministry length of Jesus, but I don't think that's the reference here. I think the way three and a half is used is to indicate something very similar to Revelation 2, verse 10. You'll be in prison 10 days. Well, what is 10 days? It's a week and a half. But what is ten days? It's an indefinite period of time. Long enough for you to feel it, but it won't last forever. I think that's the same kind of idea being conveyed here. The enemies are going to surround the holy city. They're going to lay waste to the holy city, but it's not going to last forever. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of hurt is going to happen, but it's not going to last forever. Now, it's here where we need to pause because a lot of people reading Revelation go into the book with the idea that Revelation was written to, in part... Uh, prophesy and talk about the upcoming, they think, destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in the year seventy by General Titus, the future emperor. Titus goes in, sacks the city, puts down the Jewish rebellion, lays waste to the temple, burns it all down. That's the end of the, the basically the Jewish society as it was known from Abraham to that point, with hiccups along the way. It was pretty much ended right there. You know, the people continued on, but they were a shell of their former selves after seventy. So a lot of people read Revelation and they look for signs and clues and prophecies pointing to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Well, in my interpretation, I see Revelation, and I think the internal and external evidence points to the book being written 20 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. I think any references you could make to the destruction of Jerusalem are made with the understanding that the audience have already known about it, and he's using that as an allegory for something else. And see, the problem I have with the people who say, look, he's obviously talking about Jerusalem... Uh huh. And he's obviously talking about Gentiles surrounding Jerusalem. Uh huh. And he's obviously talking about them destroying Jerusalem. Uh huh. Therefore, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Wait. Since when are we taking things literally in Revelation? You see what I mean? You don't take these things literally, they may be specific things you can identify which are used allegorically. You see a lion, he's not literally talking about a lion. You see an angel, he's not literally talking about an angel. He's talking about various metaphorical, allegorical representations or conclusions to draw. So yes, I have no doubt he's using the destruction of Jerusalem here. But he's using it to convey a different idea. What is that idea? A a spiritual second kind of destruction of Jerusalem. Well, what was the destruction of Jerusalem? It was a foreign enemy invading God's holy city, Destroying God's holy people. That's from the Jewish perspective. But the revelation version of that is an evil enemy invading God's holy city. Destroying God's holy people. And you're going to see that in this chapter. God's people, God's people that reside in God's holy temple being seemingly killed and left for dead and all of the enemies rejoicing over it. Only four, three and a half days later, them to spring back up, pop back up alive and well. And everybody gets angry because they thought they had killed God's people. Who are God's people in Revelation? They're not the Jews of Jerusalem. They're the Christians in this context living in Rome, being persecuted by Rome. Jerusalem in this context, and there's a specific verse that makes it very apparent. We'll get there later. Is Jerusalem in this context is Rome itself. And the people who live in Rome, the Christians who live as a temple of God in Rome... Being surrounded and attacked and killed, as we've seen throughout this book. And the message to them, the one message of hope, that you will rise again, you'll have ultimate victory. That's just, I'm just playing those seeds. You'll see that as we go through it. I just didn't want you to, to see these words and phrases and just stop with the first connection. This means Jerusalem. Yes, John expects you to know that. He then wants you to move past that to the allegory. All right? Incidentally, about 42 months that reference daniel has a reference something similar in daniel 12 verse 7 he talks about um a period of suffering for god's people he describes the length of it as time times and half a time year more than a year as in to say another whole year two years year two years and a half a year three and a half years something similar it's not the same phraseology but a similar kind of connection that if i was a christian reading this who would have familiar knowledge of daniel I might draw that connection. Alright, keep going. Look at verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. What is a thousand two hundred and threescore days? It's roughly three and a half years. Just another way of phrasing the same period of time. You have during this symbolic three and a half year siege of a symbolic city. A city of God's people, His temple. Being surrounded by these evil uh, Gentiles, we said a couple of verses ago. You have, during this whole period, the, the, the power given to these two witnesses. During this period where persecution is at its worst, God is going to have two witnesses bearing witness. The word witness, does your Bible say witness, by the way? Everyone has the same word? It is the word literally translated or other, otherwise translated as martyr. A witness is just a martyr. We hear martyr, we think, got killed. Well, potentially, sometimes even usually, but the word just means one who bears witness. Stephen was a martyr. He bore witness and died for it. Someone who's willing to bear witness to the cost of their own life. So I'm going to send out these two martyrs, he says, and those martyrs will prophesy for this three and a half year period, and they will prophesy clothed in sackcloth. Alex, what do we know about sackcloth from the book of Job? Yeah, exactly. He says the time of mourning. It's the clothing, the the traditional garment of sadness and despair and mourning. We're going to see why there's mourning as we go through it. But who are these witnesses? There's a lot of different interpretations. One interpretation says, well, there's two witnesses because Jesus in Luke 10, yeah, verse one, sent out the the witnesses two by two, sent out his messengers two by two. So that's the same thing. Two by two, two witnesses, so forth. Well, I guess it, it It connects in a superficial way, but I don't think that's the meaning. Another one says, well, it's two witnesses because you have to have two witnesses to, um, to uh, validate a, a testimony. It takes the testimony of two witnesses for something to be considered true. First Corinthians 13 alludes to that, or Second Corinthians alludes to that, and the Old Testament legal system is built on that idea. You need two witnesses. Well, again, fair, but that doesn't really come out in the verses succeeding this. You don't really see that demonstrated. Another one says, well, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. I see that one a lot. But I don't like that because this might surprise you, but I would challenge you to find me a reference in the New Testament to the New Testament. You don't find them because the New Testament is still being written. And so it's not necessarily necessarily usually self alluded to. You have reference to the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the words of prophecy, but that's always talking about the Old Testament. While the New Inspired message is still being written, the New Testament doesn't really allude to itself. Doesn't mean it's uninspired. Doesn't mean it's not a New Testament. It's just, it's not referenced in that way, the 27 volume Inspired uh, record. So that would be, it would be the one and only time or the one specific allusion to it uh, in that way. I I just don't think that's the case. I think the next verse, verse 4 of Revelation 11, will tell us um, what these two witnesses are. In fact, it specifically does tell us. It's up to us to figure out the interpretation. He says that these two witnesses, verse 4, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, your Bible might not say candlestick. Does yours say lampstand? Right? But does everybody's Bible say olive tree? tree. Or olive tree? Fine, fine, perfect. All right, so what are these two witnesses? Now, let's think about this. You have to take your minds back to the first century. And not in a, in a um, doctrinal way, but just in a societal way. Just living in the first century. Olive oil and fire used to produce light, heat. Yeah, basically light and heat. The point is though, no, olive oil and fire go together. And what do we have here? You have two olive trees and two candlesticks. What you have here, these two witnesses are further described for us in this verse. In the next verse, from verse 3 to verse 4. Further described to us as fuel and fire, as that which burns and the burning that is the result of it. You have the spiritual equivalent here of the menorah inside the temple, which John is currently measuring the menorah, which burns its fire with olive oil. You have the menorah and the oil, which feeds those flames, olive trees and candlesticks, olive oil and lampstands. Same idea from a practical standpoint. It's just fuel and fire. But that's your first connection. All you've done, if that's the case, all you've done is unlock the, the the literal term. Now I need the allegory. Now I need the connection. What's the point? What am I learning from that? Well, fuel spreads by fire. Fire spreads when you add more fire spreads with fuel, I should say. Fuel spreads a fire. So what spreads the fire of this message? Because if you go back, if you remember in verse 3, these people are called two witnesses. And these two witnesses are fuel and fire. What is God's witness? What is God's message that you preach to the point of including death? What is the fuel that fire that, that burns the fire of God's message? It's the inspired Word. What is it you're preaching? The Word of God. And you preach it and it spreads like a holy flame. Fuel spreads to feed a fire. What spreads the fire of God's message? What is the fuel? The word of God. Whether it's written form or preached form, that's what these messengers, or that's what the message itself is, going out to present. I I think the two messengers specifically, just to kind of distill it down, simply refer to the Christian and his Bible. The preacher of the word of God and the word of God itself. The fuel and the fire. That's all it is. I don't read anything too crazy or remarkable into it. And I think it's very clear as we go through the rest of the chapter that he's going to be talking about Christians being killed as martyrs for preaching the message. Whenever we preach the Holy Spirit-inspired message, we are spreading the gospel flame, fueled to us by that spiritual word. Now, we may suffer persecution because of our preaching. We may even be killed because of our preaching. But as we'll see in this chapter, God will raise us up again. Now that doesn't, I say all that, that doesn't explain why there have to be two olive trees and two candlesticks, for that my answer is, I don't know, let's move on. Verse 5, and if any man will hurt them, his messengers, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner, or that is to say in the manner in which they hurt them, they must in that manner be killed. Remember the word messenger, same as the idea of martyr. So these messengers who deliver the inspired word, the fuel and the fire of God's word, they might be killed in the line of duty. Well, what happens to those who kill God's evangelists? What happens to those who kill God's people? What does he say? They will be devoured by fire. But wait, fire is the message. Yes, exactly. Because when I preach the message, I'm going to preach to you a message of hope. But if you don't repent, that message of hope becomes a message of doom, does it not? The same message that could save your soul will also condemn your soul if you don't obey it. And so if you reject that message, if you even kill the one, or especially if you kill the one who preaches it, that message of redemption becomes a message of condemnation. Fire, which destroys. Proceeds out of their mouth, metaphor, and devours the enemies. And look look at the second clause of the verse. If any man hurts them, he must in that same way be killed. In other words, what is the, the uh, weapon of choice used against God's people? In the metaphor, that same weapon will be turned against them. Not literally. God's not literally going to be sawing people in half or literally feeding them to lions, the Romans or whomever. What he's saying is justice will be done. God will be a God of justice. What you do, you'll get. What you give, you'll get back. And if it's bad, bad's coming. God doesn't have to be a God of justice. In fact, in our case, we're thankful He's not. We're thankful He's a God of grace instead of justice. He gives us what we don't deserve. But to these enemies, the promise is you'll get what you deserve. Hurt my people, you get hurt right back. Verse 6. These messengers, His people being sent out, have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of the prophecy. Their prophecy. Who are we talking about here? God's the preacher in His Bible. The prophet's. But it rained on the days of their prophecy and had power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. These olive trees and candlesticks, but who are they? God's people sent out who are being killed. These have the power, the power of the prophets. That's not to say I who could typify this person have this power. It's to describe them in the same category of the Old Testament prophets. So you draw that connection, then you make the allegory. Old Testament prophets, now New Testament prophets. Well, what do you tell me about Old Testament prophets? What do you say to me to make me make that connection to make the allegory? Well, how do you describe an Old Testament prophet? By the miracles they do. They can shut up heaven so that it's not raining. Elijah did that. James 5.17, the New Testament reference. You can turn water to blood. One of the plagues of Egypt, which Moses, a prophet in that sense, did. Exodus 7.19. Um... And smite the earth with plagues, all the other plagues, Exodus chapters 8 through 11. All done by God's power through his human messengers, sent out and hated and reviled by those to whom they preached, who didn't want to obey. So whoever these two witnesses of Revelation are, they are obviously in verse 6 connected thematically with the Old Testament prophets. I think I'm supposed to make that connection and then therefore conclude, well, these must be, in this context, the New Testament prophets. Because Rome isn't persecuting Elijah. Who's Rome persecuting? The people who are sticking their necks out to preach Jesus. Finding themselves being exposed and thus being killed. And they're sent out with the power to shut up heaven. The King James says power. Does your Bible say power at the beginning of verse 6? It's not the Greek word dunamis, which is the common word for power. This is the word exousia, which means privilege. They go out with the right. God has given them the right to carry out His message and to work His will. Verse 7, so here are these messengers fueled with the fire of God's preaching. They go out and they preach the message in the midst of this evil world. And they are surrounded and what happens to them? Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them. And kill them. Who is the beast from the bottomless pit that makes war against God and kills? Who are we talking about? This one's easy. Indeed, this is the devil. He is the ultimate, eventual, final loser in the fight. But his nails have not been clipped yet. He's still going to cast uh, a pall over the world. He's still going to do his dirty deeds. In the world. He wants to overcome us. And sometimes he does overcome us. In fact this verse even uses that expression. Sometimes he does overwhelm and defeat. Us individually. But through Christ. 1 John 2.13 We can overcome the devil. And yet he will still succeed in killing. Many of God's people. That's why the message from chapter 10. Is bitter sweet. You're going to win in the end. But he's going to take as many of you down. With him as he can. And so that's the that's the picture. In fact, really what you're reading, I said, I think I said this at the beginning of class, the little scroll from chapter 10 is just the rest of Revelation. You're seeing that right here. You're seeing the idea of a bittersweet message played out in chapter 11 of you going and preaching the sweet message of redemption and in the bitterness of the devil coming up and, and trying to kill you for it. And in fact, succeeding in killing you for it. In fact, he's going to succeed in killing a lot of you, John says. But don't lose sight of the fact that this chapter began with John being told to measure a house to hold God's people. Right now, that people are being, is being killed piece by piece by piece. And that's demonstrated in verse 8. The King James says, they are dead bodies, plural. Is that what your Bible says? Tommy, you've got to look. Does your Bible say dead bodies? Everybody's Bible says bodies, plural? All right. Is this plural? It should not. It should not. The word is Ptoma, which means a corpse, singular. Just a lifeless thing. A ruined thing, even. It didn't have to necessarily refer to a person, though in this context it clearly does, two people. Um, It could it just a, a, a fallen city. Same word, a ruined thing. It's a singular word, not a plural. So John is seeing death. He's not seeing the dead peoples. He zooms out and he sees just death in general. He sees, well, keep reading. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. He's going to describe it for you, but what we're talking about here is this big circle. Measure the temple. Don't measure the courtyard. And there's a whole city where the bad people are trampling and stomping around. The dead are going to go out and they're going to stick their necks out to preach the message and they're going to be killed. And John is going to step out of the temple and look and see death everywhere in all of this city. Okay, that's where we are. They will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, oh, he just tells you, don't take this literally, but people still do it. Spiritually, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, again, people make this mistake. They say, oh, Sodom, Egypt, that's a metaphor. The city where the Lord is crucified, hot dog, that's Jerusalem. Wait, why is that one literal and not the other two? If the other two are metaphors, the third one should be a metaphor. It's not literal Jerusalem any more than it's literal Sodom or literal Egypt. It's a metaphor to describe a great city Whereupon great evil is done. What is the great evil of Sodom? In fact, don't answer that. I think we all know it. What is the great evil of Egypt? Blasphemy against God, the hard hardness of Pharaoh, and slavery to God's people, right? What is the great evil of Jerusalem? The killing of the Son of God. In fact, that's the specific reference there. Now you take all those, you have debauched sins, you have blasphemy against God, and the, the forced servitude of God's people, and you have... The killing of God's holy child—that is a three-tiered recipe for Rome, not Jerusalem, which was not a debauched society, though they weren't exactly, you know, angels, but they weren't a debauched society like Sodom. But you could find similar sins in Sodom that you could in Rome, and certainly you could find the uh, the uh, forced uh, servitude to God's people, bow down to Domitian and worship him as a as a king. That was common in the Roman Empire at this time. If nothing else, the enslavery of God's, the uh, enchaining of God's people, the imprisonment of them, and of course, the city where the Lord is crucified. Well, no one is saying Jesus was killed in Rome, but a whole bunch of other Christians were killed. People of Jesus were killed. So this is not literal Jerusalem. Why would it start being literal now? Instead, find the three-tiered connection to those, the allegory that connects all three of those to Scriptures. Well, I think John is seeing here, I think what he's being allowed to look at is the city in which all of God's people are being killed right now, that he's writing about right now, which is Rome. Rome is the great enemy being wielded, the sword being used by the devil to hurt God's people. And there, he is witnessing through that context the seeming death, the apparent death of God's people. And I have, to, I have to put it in that term because if I just say he's watching the death of Jesus' church, you'd look at me funny because Jesus' church is not dead. Well, it's dead in the same sense that Jesus was dead. He just didn't stay dead. That's what we're about to see. Keep going. Verse 9. They of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see the dead for three days and a half. Not three years and a half anymore. Now it's just three days and a half. All this dead that John saw, other people and kindred and nations are going to witness it. And they're only going to see for three days and a half. And then what's going to happen? In the meantime, look at the end of verse 9. No one is going to be allowed to put the dead in graves. Is that what your Bible says? Why don't you put dead in the grave? Aren't you supposed to put dead in the grave? Why would you not put dead in the grave? Say again? Either because it's not dead or because it's not going to stay that way. Right? If, someone, if you knew this person is dead, but they're going to rise in three days, would you go to the trouble to have a funeral? No, you'd stick them in a room and you'd wait. And you'd wait for the day when Jesus would rise them, raise them again as He promised He would do in that scenario. So here, John is witnessing God's holy and faithful messengers going out and preaching the Gospel and being killed for it. And they're lying dead. And then the message goes out, they're dead, but nobody bury them. Why? Because they're not going to stay that way. The devil is going to kill some of us. The devil is going to kill, metaphorically it might seem, The whole church of Christ. It might seem like the whole of it is snuffed out. But let's just keep reading. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. If death was the end, then your Bible would have ended in Matthew chapter 27. But it doesn't. Your Bible would have ended in John chapter 19. But it doesn't. John chapter 20 happened. Look at verse 10 of Revelation 11. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over the dead. Who are these people who rejoices over killing God's people, God's enemies do, they will rejoice over the dead and make merry and send gifts one to another. Why? Because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Go away, you tormentors, you people who keep telling us what to do, really telling us what God said to do. Go away, you tormentors, you people who keep trying to convict us of our sins. Go away, you tormentors. Go away. And then finally they're killed. Woo, finally, we can be left alone. Look, they're dead. Why why, why, why isn't anybody bearing them? Oh, wait, let's see what happens. Verse 11. And after three days and a half, the King James says the capital S Spirit. But it's not the Holy Spirit. It's the breath of God, Spirit of life the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell upon all them which saw them, them being the ones mentioned in the previous verse. So they were all celebrating. They were all happy. They were all having a great time. Finally, our great tormentors are dead and now we can be evil without any repercussions. Oh no, they're rising from the dead. Right? It's like a zombie movie except the zombies are the good guys in this case. They're dead, but God will put his spirit of life back into them. He breathed it into Adam long, long ago, and he'll breathe it into them again. Now, this is metaphor. That you're supposed to make the first connection to Adam and God gave life to Adam, a dead husk and from the dirt, and then draw the allegory. The devil may persecute, the devil may torment, the devil may even succeed in killing some of us, but in the end, ultimately, those who rejoice over our death will be despondent because we will rise again. That's the message. Never lose sight of the whole big picture point of Revelation, which is just hang on. Victory is coming. You've already won. Just get there. Get to the celebration party, which is the last two chapters of this book. Just once you get there, it'll all be worth it. You've already won. So just hang on. But they're killing us, killing us, killing us. Yes, but you'll rise, rise, rise. So don't give up because the only way you lose this is if you give up. Dying does not lose the fight. Dying is an express lane to victory. You only lose when you say, I don't want to die. It's one way or another you're going to die. I'd rather die as a Christian than die as one who abandoned Jesus. Right? Verse 12. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So it it dances back and forth between the messengers and the people rejoicing over the messengers. The messengers go out and they preach. And up slithers the great beast, the devil himself, to strike them down. Because he can't have preaching of truth. He's the enemy of truth. He's the lover of lies. So he slithers up from the bottomless pit and he strikes down those people that preach the truth. Oh no, it's dead. They're killing us one by one. But then they rise. And when they rise, those people celebrating the death of God's people will now be bitter and angry and frustrated and they'll have to watch as God's people don't just rise from the grave because there was no grave for the ground they will rise up into the clouds and they will watch them shaking their fists that they lost like the scooby-doo villain you know I would have got away from it if it wasn't for that pesky Jesus right don't read this as a rapture text don't read this as a premillennialist. This is when all the saints are called up and all the good people go up to heaven all the left behind people stay on earth. There is no Bible for that. There is no reference for the rapture in that context. That's not even what the word rapture means. All the word rapture means is this. Look at me. That's rapture. To be enraptured is to be elated. To be overjoyed. And when the Lord does return and we are called up, it will be a big rapturous moment. We will enrapture... View the Lord. We will be happy and elated. The rapture is not the separation of good people from bad people and the good people go to the clouds and the bad people sit down here and wonder, why is that car no longer occupied? They do not have the bumper sticker. That is not what the rapture is. That is f- fiction. Not even well-written fiction. But it's fiction nonetheless. This is not that. It's for, for multiple reasons. Not the least of which is because that ain't Bible, But also because it doesn't even jive with the own doctrine of the rapture as taught by premillennialists. And is not taught by the Bible. Because the doctrine of the rapture as taught by a premillennialist is, as you know, the rapture will just happen and then just half of us won't be here. And we'll be looking around and wonder where is Uncle George? Uncle George was apparently good. And Aunt Sally was apparently not. So she'll wonder where Uncle George went. She won't know. Well, people are knowing what's happening in this verse. Because it says very clearly that the good ascend up to heaven in a cloud and the enemies are watching them go. So, no one's going to be wondering, gee, I wonder what's going on right now. They're going to know what's going on because they killed these people, watched them rise after a three day party, and then ascend up to victory. And they're left to be suffered. They're left to suffer in the metaphor that describes eternal losing of the fight. So, don't, don't inject, like you're, like you're cooking a turkey, don't inject your false doctrine in the verse. Just draw out. From the verse, what it's saying. Verse 13. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Don't lose sight of our three tiered picture here. A lot of stuff has been happening in the city. The dead were killed and the dead rose and the dead ascended. And then what are we still seeing here? In the same hour of the ascension of the victor for the dead, the resurrected, we'll say, came this great earthquake. Earthquakes depicted in Revelation are, as they're depicted in the Old Testament, the power of God being demonstrated, the moving of God, the stirring of God, and the action of God. Well, here is the action of God. This great earthquake happens, and a tenth part of the city falls. What city are we talking about? Not Jerusalem, but the application of Jerusalem, Rome. God is going to bring retribution, and Rome is going to crumble a piece at a time. Tenth part of the city will fall. And in this earthquake, are going to be slain 7,000. Is there significance to the fact that there are many thousand of them? No, but if it's 7,000, seven in seven Revelation is repeatedly used to represent a totality of something, a complete number of something. So a whole big chunk will fall. Not everybody literally, because the very next phrase is there's going to be a remnant that will be afraid. But now hang on, because again, we have to keep all of our pieces on the board straight here. Because we've got, we've got God's people, okay? They're here in the temple. Two of them go out, all right? And they preach, and then they're killed. And then they ascend up into heaven, all right? Right? All these people here, these are the bad people, they're evil, and they're, that looks like a W if you're sitting over here, but it's an E if you're sitting over here, they're, they're evil and they're rejoicing over the death of the, the righteous people, but then the righteous people rise, and then they're left twisting in the wind. They're left disappointed that they couldn't permanently kill their enemies. And then, right after they have to watch their enemies rise and not be killed, suddenly the ground starts shaking and they realize God is not done with us yet, and comes this great retribution where all of the dead, all the evil people start dying. And they die all around here. But there is a remnant of people that is left. So who is the remnant? Who is the leftover people that are left? It's not these people, it's not these people. Well, who's left? It must be these people. So who are these people? There are three categories of people talked about here. There are the people who are already gods, the people who are not going to be gods because they're trying to kill God's people. I mean, God, apostrophe S, yes, gods, belong to God. But then there are the people who are not yet gods, but maybe who could become gods. Yeah, Gentiles, but the Romans are Gentiles too, so let's not be too vague and just say Gentiles. They could be like the people, kind of like the people who, in the uh, well, like the Ethiopian eunuch for an example. This may not be a perfect example. The Ethiopian eunuch went all the way to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, a eunuch. Therefore, he was um, prohibited because of his circumstances from fully engaging in an act of worship the way your run-of-the-mill Jew could do. And yet he had enough care and enough desire to go all the way there to take part in it. He just couldn't go all the way in. He could get close, but he couldn't go all the way into the holy city the holy holy building of the city so you have all these wicked people here you have god's people here but then there's this left behind rent oh i shouldn't have said left behind this leftover residue of people this left behind ah there it is again this remainder remnant is the word used who are afraid and will give glory to the god of heaven in other words christians are going to be killed All right, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel. And the people who don't want to hear the gospel are going to kill me. What about the people who I preach to who do want to hear the gospel? They might be motivated to obey the gospel by seeing how willing I am to die for it, right? Say, let's not think of they're going to kill me and that's going to turn people off. No, it could be that the people will see and honest hearted people will see. Here's a person willing to die for that message. It must be worth something. They inquire further and they learn more and maybe they become God's people. And they go from the courtyard into the temple itself. I'm basing that all that on the fact that John painted this picture originally. He painted the picture of a temple, a courtyard, and a city beyond. He made it three tiers, not me. I'm just doing the math. He's talked about this group. He's talked about this group. All that's left is this group. And all I'm trying to do is figure out who could this group be. If they're not evil people trying to kill Christians, and they're not Christians yet, then maybe they're just pagans who are not yet Christians. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I think. She said people that can be persuaded. As opposed to, you know, your, your standard, you know, Roman zealot who is not persuaded, tries to kill. All right, look at verse 14. We're almost done with the chapter and with the class. Verse 14. The second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Well, hold on, slow your roll. Two woes have been given, and in the, in the course of those two woes, we've heard six trumpet um blasts each of which promise defeat and with each of the six trumpets sounding promise a different aspect of the defeat of the roman empire the first trumpet essentially your land will be destroyed the second trumpet your government will fall the third trumpet your leaders will crumble the fourth trumpet your sky will darken the fifth your authority will fail and the sixth your army will lose we saw all that in the chapters preceding this one six trumpets Two woes, and they're all starting to form this very clear picture of a very dangerous enemy that is just doomed to fail eventually. And just hang on, and your victory will come. Seventh trumpet, third woe, is going to describe for us how ultimately that enemy is going to be put away for good. And wouldn't you know it? Verse 15, the seventh angel sounds. Now, if I'm John, I've been watching this play. For a little bit there, I took part in it. if you remember. He had to go up to the angel and get the little scroll, and he had to eat it. So he took part for a minute, but now he's back off the stage. Now he's sitting in the stands and he's been watching. It got really quiet in heaven and then the trumpets were distributed and he sat with anticipation. And then, Set one by one by one, trumpets are blasting. Now it's the last one and you know John is thinking, is this it? Is the movie almost over? It, I mean, we still have 45 minutes to go in this film. It's a two and a half hour movie. He's thinking there's more to go, but I don't know what it's going to be because we're running out of trumpets here. The last one's about to sound. Your anticipation should be building. Let's see what's going to happen. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounds and there is this explosion of noise in heaven, great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's no coincidence that this angel holds on to his trumpet and he doesn't sound his trumpet. He waits until what? We witness God's people be killed by this evil nation and then God's earthquake starts to stir and starts to break down this nation. And as it does, this conclusion starts to come to mind. Not conclusion like finality, but like I'm, I'm, I'm adding it up. Two plus two equals four. God's nation is being attacked, killed, risen, ascended, and these evil killers are going to be punished. And I'm starting to draw the conclusion to that thesis, which is, these nations will rise and these nations will fall, but God's nation, the one that's being assaulted right now, will last forever. And that's what this great chorus is saying here. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. It is not that the world's kingdoms transform into the Lord's kingdoms. It's that they will be swallowed up by him. It. It's it's uh, uh, an overthrow reference. It's just the phraseology would be very familiar to people at this time and who study this kind of thing. It is not like when, uh, when an empire like Persia conquers Babylon. It's not like um, it becomes Persia-Babylon. It's just Babylon becomes subservient to Persia. They become a vassal state to Persia. So here are all these kingdoms of the world and now they're going to be put into submission to God. They were rising up and they were attacking and they were brutalizing, but soon God is going to rise up and He's going to crack the whip and He's going to put them in submission. And all these kingdoms of the world are going to be forced to bow to the Lord and to His Christ. And He, Christ, is going to reign forever and ever and ever again. Daniel 2.44. Daniel 2.44, right? Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the stone cut out of the mountain and it consumes all consumes all the other kingdoms. And he concludes that God will have a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Same idea here. Verse 16. Still in the middle of this heavenly chorus. And the four and twenty elders. We haven't seen them in several chapters, but they're still around. Which sat before God on their seats. They now all fall on their faces and they all worship God. Verse 17 saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who... Is The King James says art, but who is presently and was, past tense, and are to come. We give thanks to the God who is God, who always has been God, and whoever shall be God. We give thanks to the reliable God, for the evergreen God, for the God who is dependable, who you can always count on. Um, how's it go, Alex? It's dependable, reliable. It's... Yeah, it's the greatest God of all. It's not the greatest book of all, but it's incredible, reliable, it's somethingable, it's wonderful. It's the greatest God of all. That's what they're saying here. You have been, you always will be, and you are even still. That's who they're praising. Because, why? Middle of verse 17. Because you have taken to thee your great power and have reigned. Taken to thee, the King James says, you've claimed for yourself over these kingdoms of the world. You've knocked their crowns off their heads, and you've placed a big one on your own. You've claimed what is rightfully yours. Dominion over all creation. Now listen, this is a seed he's planting here. He's going to water this in a few chapters. Or really, two chapters. But this idea of God rising up against the enemies of God, and he's not just rising up to protect, he's rising up to attack. He's not just sheltering his people, he's... um, Offering retribution to his enemies. So he's attacking the enemies. He's destroying them. He's subduing them. He's knocking the crowns off their head. He's claiming for himself dominion. Hang on. The devil has dominion over the world right now. The devil is the God of this world, according to Paul in the Corinthians. The devil is the the ruler, the prince of the darkness and the air. So when, when God rises up to defend His people and to smack back at the, His enemies, what He's doing is He is going into the devil's turf and he is saying, now I'm going on offense against you. And the devil's going to have to fight back and lose. And that's the chapter is to come. Verse 18. And the nations were angry. And, your, and thy wrath is come. And they're talking to God. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should give uh, your reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. This is classic Old Testament poetic um, uh, statements of praise and exalting of God. Where you kind of tell God what He already knows, but how can He not do that because He knows everything anyway. They kind of flowerly and uh, 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 grandiosely tell Him, our enemies were evil, our enemies were really big, but man, God, were You even bigger. That's what they're doing here. Look at it again. It's very wordy. The nations were angry, but then Your wrath came. And the time of the dead that should be judged... That, that 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 gosh I'm tongue-tied that thou should give reward to your servants the prophets and the saints and them that fear your name you're going to take care of your people small and great and destroy them which destroy the earth you're going to take care of your enemies small and great in a different way verse 19 and the temple of god was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. We circle all the way back to the beginning of this chapter. Take this measuring stick. Let's see how big this temple is. In the course of all that, a lot of people are killed and resurrected and ascended to heaven. And at the end of it, we circle back around and the temple doors open up. And people are able to to peer into the temple and see beyond to the Ark of the Testament. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you were able to do this in... Well, it's not in Jerusalem anymore. It's the Dome of the Rock now. But if you could go back 2,000 years to actual old physical Jerusalem and you could go to the temple. I mean, you'd have to sneak past the security guards because we're all a bunch of stinking Gentiles. But if you could get to the temple and you could get the doors open, you could peer in, as is being described right here, right? And you could look into the temple, you would not be able to see the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because there's a curtain there. Exactly. Bill says it's behind the veil. There is the second curtain. If it was the tabernacle, it was the, the second curtain, the temple, is big doors, and then there's the first curtain. The curtain which separates the holy place from the most holy place. That curtain is there, which means you can't see what's beyond it. But here, in this apocalyptic version of it, as John has been measuring it and he's been preparing it for all these people to come into it, we're able to peer in and we can see past the veil to the Ark of the Testament. Why? What happened to the veil? Metaphorically, we literally, but that's the metaphor, Yes. Bill says he was ripped. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil ripped from top to bottom, which is improbable, if not impossible. It ripped to illustrate that the way into the most holy place had not previously been made manifest, but now is made open to all. Now we can approach boldly, as the Hebrews writer says in chapter 4. We can approach boldly the throne of God. We can enter into the temple. It doesn't matter what your birth or ethnicity or nationality, etc. Now we can go into the holy abode of God and belong to the house of God. Be the people of God. Be His new priests and priestesses. And that's what you're seeing here. The way in which is open. There's no veil separating you from God anymore. God is open to you now. Again, verse 19. The temple of God is opened in heaven. Incidentally, if the temple is in heaven, the temple isn't heaven. What is the temple in this context? It's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is not heaven. It's heavenly. It's heaven-ish. It's heaven in its design and its origin. As we'll see at the end of this book, the church is going to come down from heaven. But the church is not heaven. It's comprised of people who belong to heaven. But it itself is not heaven itself. Anyway, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there were seen in that temple, the Ark of the Testament, and just exploding all around it is lightning and voices, the King James says. Um, a cacophony of noises and thunderings and an earthquake and even great hail. What you're seeing is a picture of a God that is alive and stirring and active. As I said at the end of the sermon on Sunday, God is not dead. You see that right here. God is not asleep. And even though it feels like I'm being overwhelmed, I'm totally surrounded, and I'm being killed left and right, wrong shall fail, right shall prevail. And peace will come, not necessarily on earth, unless you mean within your soul and goodwill to men. So that's the, that's the message of Revelation chapter, what was that one? 11. That's the message, which is you're surrounded, your enemies are evil and bad, and they're hurting you, but you know what? Let them kill you. Let them kill you. I'll raise you back up. And then all they'll be able to do is to shake their fists as you go on up, and then I'm going to stir. The way to paradise, the way to the temple is open to you, and they're left behind to be punished. But again, not a rapture thing. Let's not go down that road. All right, that's Revelation chapter 11. We'll study chapter 12, which is where it gets, well, I mean, it's been pretty wild. But it gets bonkers in chapter 12. You got all kinds of things that he sees by looking up at the stars. He's going to see a woman giving birth, and there's a dragon who's trying to eat the baby, and it's just this big, giant thing. It's a great, great chapter. I cannot wait to get out the markers with this baby. So um, that's all I've got for you tonight. Thanks you all. Uh, Any comments or questions from anybody? All right. No, I will not tell you what rapture means again. You can watch the tape. All right. Thanks you all very much. Have a good weekend.